verses 5 through 6 from the English Standard Version. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'm grateful to see all of you here this morning. I appreciate so very much your interest in spiritual things that motivates you to be in a house of worship this morning. And to all of you who are joining us online, we're grateful for your presence and for your interest as well. I've mentioned several times that on a weekly basis, I hear from people who are are tuning in and watching us online who otherwise we would never be able to connect with. And I'm delighted when I see that and see the numbers about people who have logged on and are joining us online. Just this past week, there was a a young lady that told me about her parents happened to, at her invitation to, to, to tune in last Sunday, and, and they, they already have worship there. They're reconvening back in their building, but they decided that they're going to watch us in the afternoon when they get home from church. So I, I'm delighted when I hear those kinds of things and the interest that people have in what we're doing here as the kingdom of God. Let me also say last Sunday morning I asked you to pray for my my friend, my brother Harold Savage, who preaches over in the Atlanta area. Apparently you did that because he's now at home and he's doing much better. He's still on oxygen and his wife Kay said he's making baby steps to a full recovery. But I'm just convinced that so much of that is due to the prayers of good people like you. And keep praying for Harold, if you will. We're going to be talking about... Curing the disease of fear this morning. And that may sound like kind of a weird thing to be talking about. After all, it's not even Halloween anymore. But, but if you look through Scripture, and in particular the pages of the New Testament, and you find how many times this statement or some uh, derivation of it is made, be not afraid. Now, that's New Testament vernacular. You wouldn't say that when, you know, you go down the hall in the middle of the night trying to console a, a scared child. Be not afraid. You'd probably say, hush, go to sleep. But that's not important. Biblically speaking, that, that phrase or some derivation of it is found frequently in Scripture. And Jesus, it seems, was constantly having to tell his disciples to not be afraid. And they're going to do that in a passage that I want you to read with me this morning. If you'll be turning to Matthew chapter 14, we'll get to that in just a moment. But let's begin with a couple of three quotations. Cicero has said, no power is strong enough to last if it labors under the weight of fear. Montaigne has said, the things of which I have most fear is fear. Eric, uh, Sven Erickson said, the greatest barrier to success is the fear of failure. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then probably most noted for this quote is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt who said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Fear really is a spiritual issue. And I think that we'll establish that in this study this morning. And I want us to think for just a moment about the the legions of phobias, the, the fears that are causing people to cringe and to live below their full potential. There are tranquilizers and pep pills, there's depression, there's the rampant rate of suicide that we are currently experiencing in this country, and they all tell us of a spirit of fear that can be allowed to dominate us. You may know somebody like that, or worse yet, you may be somebody like that. You may be going through a season of fear in your life, 
Maybe there's been a, a, a terrible a diagnosis that was made in the doctor's office with you or maybe someone that you care about, and, and you're afraid of the outcome. You're afraid of what the test results will be. There are people today who are overwhelmed with the fear of a loss of their health, and that's why I mentioned that. They may have had a neighbor or a friend or a family member who's just been to a doctor. The doctor may have had to diagnose some serious illness, maybe even a, a terminal illness, and, and so fear strikes. And there are literally thousands, if not millions, of people who are, are cringing at the very idea of, of losing their health. And then there's somewhat related to that is the fear of the loss of one's youth. Ours is not the only culture, and it is not the only generation that is, uh, has emphasized the desire to stay young. Maybe, maybe they've never taken it quite to the extreme that we have right here in this country, but people are, uh, especially in certain segments of the country, are really wanting to make sure that you do not know how old they are. And, and one guy was talking about uh, a lady that he saw in line at the store, and he said, I wasn't sure if it was plastic surgery or plastic explosives. And we've seen people like that. He said, apparently the surgery took her by surprise because she looked surprised. <laughs> but, but that's where we are. We want to hide the fact that, guess what? The natural process of things is that we get older. And we look older. And, and if you don't believe that, look in the mirror. And if you don't believe that, then listen to your friends. And if you don't believe that, listen to your enemies. So th there's the loss of one's youth that we may be afraid of. You may recall one explorer who thought that he had discovered the fountain of youth, but he was wrong about that. That was another generation. And, of course, he, he went to Florida, Ponce de Leon, I believe it was. He went to Florida looking for the fountain of youth. He did not find it, but he did find his lovely wife, Beyonce de Leon. But that's not important. Each and every time we, we, we look at ourselves, we see that there's more, more gray hair or less hair, there's more wrinkles and, and that we're losing some more of our youth and that very thought leaves a lot of folks in fear. You add to that the numbers of people who are fearful of losing their jobs. They see younger men and women come, coming into the workplace. They, they look at a particular department. They see the head of that department who is, is promoting those who are younger over those who have more seniority. And, and so they're fearful that at some time in the very near future, maybe even in the next few weeks, they will not have any job to go to. And they're fearful. And, and we understand that. And then you add to that the number of people who are fearful that they're going to lose some of their money. It may be that they've invested in the stock market. Or maybe they have invested in a piece of property or in gold or in silver and inflation and world problems has made those investments insecure. And so they lie awake at night. Oh, yeah, they're in bed. They're in a prone position, but their eyes never close because they're lying awake, tossing and turning, cringing at the fear of losing their money. And then you add to that the number of people who fear of losing their lives. And that might just well be the largest segment of us. Maybe that constitutes the greatest number, those who are truly frightened at the prospect that they're going to die. And that's why a few weeks ago we looked at the Hebrews passage that actually tells us that Jesus Christ has delivered us from the fear of death. And as Mark said a moment ago, the world didn't understand that. They don't get that, how that you can actually go through life emboldened by your faith to understand that whether we live or die, we win in either situation. Others feel maybe like Woody Allen who said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> there are a lot of people like that too. A fellow gospel preacher was 
graciously preaching the funeral of a person that he did not know at all. Sometimes preachers are called upon to do that. And at the moment he said the funeral began, there was a woman seated on the very front row who literally screamed out. And then she, her hands were flying in the air and flailing, and, and she jumped up, and she ran the length of the chapel down the aisle, back through the lobby, and out into the parking lot where she could be heard to continue to scream. He later learned that she was just a relative who simply could not cope with the thought of losing that particular person. She's typical, I think, of a lot of people who show the inability to be able to deal with the finality of death. And the Bible talks about that in, in, very, in, in very clear terms. Death for a lot of people is something that they don't fully understand, and so they, they fear that which is unknown. Our invention and use of euphemisms indicate that, that even we're not really that comfortable with the idea of death. Rather than use the words death or dying, we sometimes use words like passed away or we lost this person as if we had simply misplaced them. Or we say they've gone to their reward. I'm sure that among the many phobias that human beings suffer from, the fear of dying has to rank right up there at the top of the list. And then you can add to that number, and this will, this will end our list this morning, don't worry. The, the, the fear of, of one's past, the, the guilt that someone may be harboring and carrying around with them. And, and so they're afraid that they may run into someone or they may come in contact with someone on social media that knew them when they lived in a particular city some years ago. And they may know what that person did 20 or 30 years ago. And so they live in constant fear that their past will be revealed. And, and, and as a result of that, they don't really feel comfortable getting close to anyone because they're afraid that that person will get to know me on the inside and find out who I really am. There's a lot of people who live every day with that kind of fear. Well, guess what? Fear is an ancient disease. Again, if you look in Scripture, you will find that in Old Testament and New Testament, it is dealt with in a very forthright fashion. It's not, a, it's not a new disease at all. It's not something peculiar to this decade or to us as a people who happen to live in this area of the country. Everyone around the world, to some degree or the other, experiences some kind of fear. It's a disease that's, that's been with the human race as long as the human race has occupied this planet. And among the prescriptions for that fear are the ones that are supplied in Scripture. Let me go one step further than that and say that I am confident that only those prescriptions, those antidotes that are found in Scripture will solve our fear problem for the long haul. Now, there might be a Band-Aid that we can put on it temporarily, but if we want to make sure that we're not living in fear, that we're living by faith, we're going to have to go to God's word. And God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Second Peter 1 in verse 3 affirms. And we need to recognize that, appreciate that, and then make application of what God has said about how to, to, to take care of, to cure the disease of fear in our lives. And that's one of the many reasons why I believe that the Bible is the word of God. Because the Bible, folks, it doesn't play games. It, it, it describes people just like the people in our own generation who are dominated by fear of one kind or another. And one of the many instances, and trust me, I mean many instances in Scripture, is found in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. Did I say 14 a moment ago? That's what I meant to say. And, and let's read about 11 verses, starting with verse 22. You're familiar with the story, but notice how many times in this passage the word fear or afraid is used. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea. This is important. Watch carefully. Tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. But they didn't see that coming. Walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. Now, that that troubled word is used in the New King James Version. If you want to know what that word means, then hang on to the next statement, because it says, and they cried out in fear. So trouble just doesn't mean they were just kind of taken aback or a little bit surprised. They are afraid. Here you are in the middle of the night, and, and the winds are blowing, and the, and the sea is boisterous, and then you see somebody walking on the surface of the water toward you. How would you react? When was the last time you saw, were on a lake and you saw someone walking toward you on the water, and how would you feel about that? But immediately Jesus, verse 27, spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I think Peter is probably only one, uh, the only one of the disciples that would ever ask Jesus for ID. But that's what he's doing here. So he said, Jesus said, come. And, and when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I don't know if Peter expected the Lord to, to agree to that. Do you? I mean, he might have thought when the Lord said, well, come. I should have. I should have thought about that a little bit longer. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, here it is, he was afraid. And began to, in beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why do, did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. I'd plan to stop right there, but let's read verse 33. I can't not read verse 33. And, and those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Isn't that the appropriate conclusion to that particular experience? You are the Son of God. Nobody could do that except the Son of God. By the way, the men who stayed in the boat, some people have referred to as boat potatoes. And maybe that's right. They stayed there. They didn't have enough faith to step out into the water like Peter did, so he's to be commended at least for having that level of faith. Now, let's make a couple of observations about what we've just read. In this case, the disease of fear is crippling some adult men. We're not talking about children who are afraid of the dark. We're talking about grown men who are seasoned, who are hardened by, by manual labor. They are fishermen, or some of them are fishermen by, by their occupation. So we're talking about some, some guys who are fully mature, and, and probably there isn't a whole lot. The list is very short of things that actually scare them. And I want you to think about the times that maybe you've been afraid. Maybe you remember when you were small and maybe you were afraid of the dark, insisted on having a nightlight or leave the door open so that the light from the hallway will come into my room. Whatever it is, maybe we can remember those times in our lives when fear was allowed to kind of dominate us for a while, maybe for a period of time. It's no secret that in extreme cases, fear can actually paralyze us. Did you know that? And that's one of the reasons that we're spending this time this morning talking about this, because I don't believe that that's just true physically. I, I've seen people in the kingdom of Christ who have been spiritually paralyzed because of fear. 
And I didn't intend to say this, and, and this may be more about me than you want to know, so we might want to close the door so nobody will hear this. But I can see some times in my own life when I've been paralyzed by fear, afraid of failure, afraid that I would do something wrong, afraid of this or afraid of that. And I, I know I haven't reached my full potential because that fear has incapacitated me, and I, I sense that I'm not the only one that struggles with that. And so what we need to do is to see what God's Word has to say on the subject. By the way, there's some very real physical effects that come from the psychological effect of fear in our lives. Some of you are familiar with Dr. S.I. McMillan, who wrote a fascinating little book entitled None of These Diseases some years ago. It's not a very long book, but it's absolutely incredible. And the author there says something of what goes on in the body when the disease of fear is allowed to take over. That is, the, the fear in our minds can actually create problems with our physical self. And as a medical doctor, he chronicles many of the physical ailments that we can experience that have a purely psychological source, the various aches and pains that we might experience that are only psychosomatic in nature. So Dr. McMillan is saying if we could just get our heads straightened out, then we would have our bodies pretty much straightened out as well, at least for the reasonably healthy person. And in the passage of Scripture that we just read from Matthew, look at it again. This kind of destruction, this kind of fear, this kind of physical reaction is set off in the disciples as they see Jesus walking on the surface of the water in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm. Now, they don't, they don't know, at least at first, according to verse 26, I believe it is, they don't know that it's Jesus. And they just see something walking on the lake, and they're terrified. And I, again, ask you the question, when was the last time you saw someone walking on the surface of the lake towards you if you were sitting there in a boat? So not understanding what's happening, the disciples come to the only obvious conclusion, <laughs> it's a ghost. Immediately, they think in terms of paranormal witness, something weird is going on here. It's got to be a ghost. Bottom line, the Bible says that they were terrified and they cried out in fear. Can you imagine those old hardened fishermen sitting in the boat and they're whimpering, they're crying because they're so afraid. Now consider one of the most interesting things about the disease of fear before we move on. It's altogether possible, and the Bible deals with this as well, it's altogether possible to fear the imaginary. To fear that which exists only in the shadows of our imagination. That's the problem with a lot of us, I think, is that it's not that we fear something real. We fear something that's imaginary. It's a universal truth that we fear what we don't understand. And when we look at various phenomena in our lives and, and, and we, don't, we don't understand it, we don't know why this is happening, we don't know who this is coming toward us or whatever, there's no way to get a handle on it. And when we have no framework into which to put that experience, that's never happened to us before, it terrifies us. And we may be like those disciples and actually cry out in fear. Let me give you a quick biblical example of that. Back in the Old Testament, in Judges chapter 7, Verses 12 and following, and I would encourage you that sometime today to go back and reread that. It's a fascinating story, and, and it's primarily about Gideon. And no, this is not the one who went around and left all the Bibles in the motel rooms. This is a different Gideon. And this Gideon is a great man of God. And, and it's an interesting story of how fear and only 300 Israelites were able to defeat or send running their enemy, which was uh, uh, thousands and thousands of men. So the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Samsonites, all, all, all of these ites 
have over, uh, overrun the land of the Israelite people in such numbers that the Bible text tells us that for seven years that the Israelites had been running from them, afraid for their lives, and even living in caves. That's how desperate they were. And they were digging these holes in the ground, primitive holes in which to store their grain so that if the enemy comes, that they will not be able to find them. They won't starve to death. Anyway, all that's going on. And Gideon led a handful of men who charged the enemy. Interesting how all of this happened. You know, you remember how many men they started out with. They pared it down to only 300 men. They had their torches lit in clay pitchers so that they, the enemy can't see the flames of those torches. And, and they, so the, torch, the, the torches themselves were concealed. And all of that took place in the middle of the night just to amp up the creep factor to its highest level. Well, because of the way that they had positioned themselves around the enemy camp and because they all broke their clay pitchers at the same time so that their torches could suddenly be seen by the enemy in the camp as they're encircling the camp, the Midianites came to the conclusion that Gideon and his men wanted them to come to, and that is that these aren't just 300 men, these are thousands. And the Bible says they began to run in fear. That's what I mean. By fearing the imaginary. Only 300 men against those thousands of men that were in the camp. They could have beat them. They could have been victorious, but they ran because they imagined that they were a lot more men than, than there really were. So thinking they were fighting a massive army, they ran in fear. So I'm just saying that in a lot of cases in our lives, we fear what's not even there. It's a ghost. The disciples yelled out terrified by what they only imagined. Think of the superstitions that we have in our otherwise modern thinking world. Think of the buildings that are built without a 13th floor because of the people who are triskaidekaphobic. Think of otherwise rational people who will walk around a ladder before they'll walk under one or who are terrified when they see a black cat cross their path. Think of how we fear what we don't understand. You know, superstitions grow in in every generation of fearful people. It doesn't matter how modern we might think we are, how sophisticated, refined, and advanced. The point is, there's nothing there really to fear. We only think there is. But as Dr. McMillan pointed out, the effect on our minds and our bodies is just the same, whether the object of our fear is real or not. In so many cases, we need the antidote to the disease of fear. And if that's what you need this morning, if you're going through a season of fear right now, if you are dreading with with awful negative anticipation something that is about to happen or something that you're enduring what has already been going on in your life, then then, then this, this message is for you. Jesus said long ago, and here really is the antidote, John 8 verse 32, you shall know the truth and it will be the truth that will make you free. And I'm here to announce to you something you know already. And that is the truth in any given situation will eradicate fear from our lives. If we know the truth about the matter, if we know that God is still in heaven, that God is still on his throne, that God is still in control of the universe, and that God is is compassionate and loving, as Mark said when we gathered around the table, that not only does he exist, not only did he give his son to die for us on that old rugged cross, but that God cares about us. He is compassionate toward us. He wants only what is in our best interest. And to know that, folks, will will take care of a lot of the fear that we're experiencing in our lives. 
It's when the apostles actually hear Jesus tell them the truth. Only when Jesus comes close enough to be able to converse with those men in the boat, and and what he said was, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Just three short, simple statements that, that only then were they afraid of their imaginary illusion that he is, in fact, something out of paranormal witness. And so it's with fearing the imaginary or what we don't understand, when we know the truth about it, it frees us from the bondage of, of ignorance and superstition. We also fear, and this, I, I need to mention this point before we quit, we oftentimes fear, and, and, I, and I believe that this is true of all of us to some degree, overwhelming circumstances. It, it isn't so much that we're fr- fear, afraid of ghosts or we fear someone will break into our homes. Uh, that, may, that may be on the radar screen, but that's not the thing that probably bothers us most. It's what am I going to do if I lose my husband? What am I going to do if I lose my wife? What am I going to do with my prodigal children? They're grown and when they left home, they also left the Lord. How how do I deal with that? And those are the things that God's people have to deal with every day. The overwhelming circumstances of life. And those are the things that cause us many times to live in fear. And, And God doesn't want that kind of life for us. There's another interesting thing, I think, this incident that we've been looking at this morning that reveals something about the crippling effects of fear. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus says, come. And then Peter starts walking on the water toward Jesus. You know the circumstances and how all of that plays out in the text. But then, and and this isn't the first time that you've observed this, but I, I want to remind you of the fact that it was when, when Peter took his eyes off Jesus. Because the Bible explicitly says, when he saw the wind. Apparently, before he got out of the boat, that wasn't factored in. And he had to have seen it. I mean, that's why they're out in the middle of the boat, in in the middle of the the lake in the first place, in that boat. And, And so he has seen it, but now he really is seeing. He is locked in on the wind. And in the text we just read, the boisterous waves. Now that's beginning to, he's beginning to focus on those things. Matthew had already said before in this incident that there was a tremendous buffeting of the wind. And the Sea of Galilee, as many of you know, is famous for that. The wind whips down out of the mountains, around the sea, across the surface of the water so quickly that there are experienced fishermen, even in our day, that will tell you that you probably don't want to go too far, especially at night, away from the shoreline on the Sea of Galilee because a storm can come up that quickly and your boat will be capsized. And guess what? you will wind up in Davy Jones' locker. Peter suddenly is looking at the effects of the wind all around him. Not only is the wind blowing, the waves are churning up, and the Bible says Peter was afraid. Let's apply that to our own circumstances. Whether you ever get in a boat or not, that that matters very little. This really does apply to us. We fear whenever the circumstances of our lives and our own perceptions overwhelm us. I think every one of us who's lived life long enough can agree that we have experienced that. And when we look around and begin to see the waves churning up all around us, we start to think that maybe those circumstances will overwhelm us and that we'll go under the surface of the water and that we'll drown. I've had people actually tell me that because they're going through some really tough time and they will tell me, Brother Randy, I feel like I'm drowning. Have you ever been there? And you don't know if you're going to survive that experience or not. 
And that's apparently what Peter was feeling, exactly what he was feeling at that moment in his life. And we've all experienced something like that in our lives. We look around ourselves, we see the, we see the whipping of the waves, we see the wave maybe of, of what people think of us. I presented a lesson like that a few months ago entitled, Tear the Label Off, I Think. And sometimes we're afraid, especially with the advent of social media, of what people think of us. And, and will they post that? Our problem is the same problem that Peter had. And that is that we're no longer looking at Jesus who's right in front of us. But we're looking at the wave of what people think of us. And we sometimes are just overwhelmed by that. And we feel defeated in that situation. And what courage we had that motivated us to get out of the boat in the first place, we lose. And then, like Peter, we too become afraid. 200 years ago, a man wrote an essay, and I only have the title of it. And I would like to be able to read that essay in its entirety, but I can't because I don't know anything except its title. Now remember, this is 200 years ago, and so the language is a little bit esoteric, but still the title is, runs like this, Concerning People of Whom More Might Have Been Made. Let me repeat that. Concerning people of whom more might have been made. Again, I would love to read that, but stop and think of the people to whom that description applies. More might have been made. Think of the men who could have been elders in the kingdom of Christ, in the Lord's church, but they're just afraid that they couldn't do the job, afraid that people would not accept my leadership. Afraid of this, afraid of that. Think of the women who could have been tremendous channels of blessings in the kingdom, but they started looking at the waves and became fearful. And they began looking at all the things they can't do rather than the things that God has blessed them with that they can do. They began looking at the debit side rather than the asset side, and they never developed into what they could have become. And I'm afraid. And I mean that in the psychological sense of the word. I am afraid, folks, that oftentimes we don't meet our full potential. We don't realize our full potential because of this fear factor. And how we fear when the circumstances overwhelm us. So Peter said, Lord, save me. And the Bible says that's when he begins to sink under the waves. And to me, that's the most debilitating effect of fear because you see there is a direct, and please take this home with you, there is a direct correlation between fear and failure. Peter's frightened, so it begins to sink. He's taken his eyes off Jesus, and he's, and he's going to sink, and he's going to drown right there in that lake, just a stone's throw away from the boat. Mark it down, folks, when we fear, we fail. Maxwell Maltz has written a fascinating little book entitled Psycho-Cybernetics, and in the prologue to that book, he has said this, the very contemplation of failure in any given experience will cause us to perform less than our optimum level. That is, just contemplating what, what could go wrong with this situation will cause you to not reach your potential in that particular experience. Fear incapacitates us. That's what I've been saying over and over again. And that's not just true in, in, in the job world. It's not just true in our families, folks. It's true in the church. And that's why this is such a biblical subject. So Peter said, Master, I'm going down. I'm sinking. I'm afraid. And we fail when we fear. So the great antidote to that is to do exactly what Peter did, and that is to reach out to Jesus. And the Bible record says immediately that when Peter took the Lord's hand, that the wind stopped. And the waves were smooth. The, uh, the imagined was no longer imagined. The events of life are put into perspective 
of belief when we reach out for Jesus. And, and folks, when we, when we do that, when we reach out for Jesus, we can know that he will always be there. Even the text that was read a moment ago in your hearing, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, one version of verse 5 reads like this, My God has said, I will never under any circumstances ever leave you or forsake you. Does that mean anything to you? It does to me. There are times in my life when I have to repeat that over and over again. To be reminded that God will never, ever leave us. All we have to do is to reach out our hand for him. Keep our eyes on Jesus. And he will always be there for us. So let me say a word about the antidote of fear that we're through. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I hope you'll take this text, that you will put your marker in this text, that you will highlight this text only if you're using your own Bible. And that this text will come to mean to you what it has meant to me. We're talking about beleaguered, persecuted, oppressed Christians. We're talking about some who have already paid the ultimate price for their discipleship, and that is they are under the altar of sacrifice. They've already died. They've already died because of their faith, and now they're crying out to the Lord. And here is a part of John the Revelator's vision of Jesus. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. As though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Does this sound familiar? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades being the unseen world of the dead. Jesus is calling out to you and me to be unafraid of life. To follow him, to reach out to him, and to keep looking at him, and to become his disciple, to be his serious, sincere follower every day of our lives. And one of the most absurd features, I think, of some religions is that those religions have have taken the name of Jesus and turned that into a cause of fear. And that's not what God wants us. He wants the abundant life for us. Not for us to live cowering in the corner because of our fear. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And one of the most absurd features is, is turning our Christianity into a fear-based religion. And that's not what is described in Scripture, and it's not what God wants for us. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus said over and over again, as we've already established this morning, do not be afraid. And in effect, he's saying, I'm the one who has brought for you an abundant life. I reach out my hand to each one of you who is thrashing in the sea of despair and sinking and going down and and you're frightened. And I call you to be unafraid of life. I call you even to be unafraid of death. And I call you to walk through the experience of death. Did you notice that I said through and not just to? Because that's exactly what Jesus is offering for us. David said in that great 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now we're not walking into it, we're walking through even the shadow of death. And that ought to mean something to us. The atheist philosopher David Hume was an unbeliever right down to the very last moment of his life. At least he was consistent. His nurse has written about how he died. And I have read some of her writings. And I'm going to boil all of that down to one brief paragraph and then we're going to sing the song of encouragement this morning. 
She said that even though David Hume had said calmly all of his life and with confidence, there is no God, when it came down to his final moments of living and dying, fear crippled his spirit. And he died, as you might well imagine, cringing and crying like a baby. Those are her words, not mine. Compare that to this confident deathbed declaration. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. Those were the words of an even more brilliant man by the name of Paul, who was contrasted with David Hume, not afraid to die. So Jesus is just calling on us still today in 2020 to reach out to him so that we will not be afraid of either living or dying. He calls you to reach out to him and to take his hand so that you will not be afraid even as you face the prospects of eternity. You know, I, I, I did Linda Hanna's funeral the other day. And I have no real empirical evidence to substantiate this. This is anecdotal. But, but I have been to hundreds and, and done hundreds of funerals during my ministry. And I have seen, I, I don't know, I'm at a loss for words. I have seen confidence. I have seen boldness. I have seen people laughing as they thought about the precious memories of the one who died. I've been to funerals that were more like a celebration than they were a funeral dirge. You know what I'm talking about. And it's not that the people there didn't take it seriously. It's because they had taken it seriously for so long. And because they knew that this person was, was ready and prepared to meet God. And that's cause for celebration. Oh, do we hurt and do we grieve when we lose someone that, that, that means a great deal? Of course we do. But we sorrow not even as others who have no hope, was Paul's distinction in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And, and that's exactly what Paul could do. And that's how he could make that declaration on his deathbed. I, I'm telling you this morning, the great beyond is not something that's going to remain a, a mystery to human, any human being. Because it's appointed unto all men once to die, and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. So I'm just telling you, please, reach out to Jesus, and he will take hold of you. And if you need to come this morning in response to his gospel, we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.